0: The British naval hero Horatio Nelson is said to have called it the most bold and daring act of the age.
1: I'm Beth Sawyer, and I'm a web content developer at Monticello.
2: Hi, I'm Steve Light, and I am the Director of Education and Visitor Programs at Monticello. Welcome back to another episode of In the Course of Human Events, Monticello's podcast. And today we're going to be talking about pirates.
0: I'm David Thorson, a guide at Monticello. Among the curiosities on display in the house, visitors often want to know more about the curved sword at the foot of Jefferson's bed. It's a Mameluke sword, a sword carried by soldiers in the Ottoman Empire, a memento to commemorate his success in a 20 year long campaign to defeat the Tripolitan Corsairs, the Barbary Pirates of the Mediterranean. When Jefferson was minister to France from 1784 to 1789, he and his friend and fellow diplomat John Adams faced a major crisis. American merchant ships, unprotected since the disbanding of the Continental Navy, were being hijacked. Their crews were being held for ransom or enslaved by the Barbary Coast states of Morocco, Tunis, Algiers, and Tripoli, countries that are on the northern border of Africa in the Mediterranean. European powers were long accustomed to buying protection from Barbary piracy by paying tribute. They advised America to just do the same. Jefferson and Adams did secure a treaty of friendship with Morocco in 1787, but they were unable to do so with the other Barbary states who demanded enormous sums of tribute the U.S. couldn't afford.
2: So this whole idea that David is talking about of paying tribute, I wonder if this kind of tactic was used a lot at the time.
1: The act of paying tribute was something employed by the Ottoman Empire, these Barbary states. They could receive, these tributes receive this money in exchange for safe passage. And that was a way to bolster their own coffers.
2: But when they use the term corsairs, they're really talking about either what we would call a privateer, or perhaps more simply a pirate, right? These are individuals who are sailing military vessels with permission from these states, and their goal really is to raid commerce.
1: Exactly. Merchant vessels were often targeted by privateers. This especially happened during times of war. The line between privateering, where you had the blessing of your government to go out and secure prizes in the name of your country, versus a private pirate, so people that are just in it for themselves. I think it often got a little blurry.
2: Interesting. And and I suppose especially in times of war, one country viewing a vessel as a privateer pursuing legitimate war aims was probably viewed by another country more as a pirate, right?
1: Yes, I think a lot of it is in the eye of the beholder. (laughs) If you were a captain on a British naval vessel, and you saw a French merchant ship in the Channel or the Mediterranean, you could capture that vessel and sail that ship back to an English port. And The materials on it would be sold, and the officers and seamen on the naval vessel, they would all receive prize money, and it was a way that they could supplement their income. So there was a lot of incentive during wartime for these individual captains and their crews to take part in seizing prizes.
0: Adams and Jefferson were frustrated that America was in a weak position. It had no maritime force to take on the pirates. Jefferson wrote Adams, it would be best to effect a peace through the medium of war, to obtain justice, honor, and respect, and avoid Americans being constantly extorted by the Barbary pirates. Adams wrote Jefferson, it would be a good occasion to begin a navy. As Secretary of State, in his reports to President Washington and the Congress, Jefferson favored the use of force, either by America alone or alongside like-minded nations. He wanted to solve the problem of the Barbary pirates and proposed a naval construction program. Washington himself wrote, would to heaven we had a navy to reform those enemies. However, Congress was unwilling to fund the Navy and refused to allocate money to pay the tribute demanded by the Barbary powers. That left American citizens and merchant ship owners vulnerable to the Barbary states. And now they were sailing into the Atlantic, capturing U.S. ships and ransoming their crews. They seized 11 U.S. merchant ships in 1793 alone. Finally, at George Washington's urging, Congress acted and funded a dual policy of treaty making with the Barbary states while reviving the U.S. Navy. The U.S. negotiated treaties with Tripoli, Algiers, and Tunis to pay tribute in exchange for an end to piracy while the construction of warships, particularly six frigates including USS Constitution, created the maritime force that Adams and Jefferson long advocated to defend American interests abroad. As president, John Adams' foreign policy challenges did not involve the Barbary pirates. But when Jefferson became president in 1801, Yusuf Caramelli, the ruling Bey of Tripoli, saw the change of administration as an opportunity to demand more tribute from America. Caramelli threatened to tear up the treaty and return to piracy unless he was paid $225,000 in tribute. Jefferson refused to pay the tribute, and Caramelli declared war on America. Tunis and Algiers maintained their neutrality while awaiting the outcome of this confrontation.
1: So Steve, it's kind of bizarre to think that we had a Navy during the Revolutionary War. Everyone knows the Battle of Yorktown, but that it would be disbanded so quickly after the Revolution. What led to that happening?
2: During the revolution, we had the benefit of having the French Navy, which was much better than our kind of fledgling Navy. There were efforts to strengthen the Navy in the early Republic, but one of the things that many of the founders distrusted was this idea of a standing army. And they also thought that having a Navy would be more likely to get us entangled in these foreign wars. They see the Navy as kind of a waste of the country's money. They don't want to rack up debt. They don't want high taxes. They also do not want the young country to be a commercial empire. They see that as the country they left, Great Britain. They want the country to be kind of inward focused. And so Jefferson, at least before he becomes president, is an advocate of only building enough military strength to defend our borders, basically, and not to be involved halfway around the world.
1: That's really interesting to think that there was a strong support for such an isolationist start to the country. And it's interesting, too, that that really only lasts for one or two generations. It's as if America can't help but become embroiled at a certain point in international politics.
2: Yeah. And it's also interesting to note that when Jefferson and others don't want to see a commercial empire engaged halfway around the world in Europe, he very much has an eye on the American West, which of course will bring us into military conflict with American Indian nations later in the 1800s.
1: That's a good point. So rather than going back to Europe, Jefferson and others are looking westward and looking sort of towards new unexplored regions.
0: In May 1801, Jefferson's cabinet unanimously favored deploying the Navy and Marine Corps to deal with Tripoli. But a constitutional question arose. Did deploying the Navy and Marine Corps require approval from Congress, or could the President just send them abroad as Commander-in-Chief? Jefferson asserted his executive authority in ordered America's naval forces to the Mediterranean to search for and destroy the enemy's vessels to protect our commerce and chastise their insolence. And in August 1801, the USS Enterprise defeated the Tripolitan ship Tripoli off the coast of Malta, marking the first in a series of American victories in the conflict.
1: It is a really surprising part of this story that Jefferson makes use of the executive branch and the ability to take action without an act of Congress. Given the formation of the country and Jefferson's role in that, I found that really surprising that he takes the initiative on his own.
2: Jefferson famously has debates with Alexander Hamilton when they're considering a national bank over what implied powers the U.S. Constitution has. And Jefferson argues that the Constitution should be interpreted literally. But throughout his presidency, he has troubles with this. And he turns to his own Secretary of State, James Madison, who, of course, was one of the framers of the U.S. Constitution and one of the authors of the Federalist Papers to help get the Constitution ratified. And Madison and Jefferson have these discussions over what powers he does and does not have. Jefferson and Madison are often kind of viewed as these allies in lockstep. That's certainly how they're portrayed, for instance, in the musical Hamilton. But Madison certainly has a more expansive view of of what powers are, are present in that US constitution. And so when Jefferson is struggling with his own ideas about what he's allowed and not allowed to do. Madison is there to push his friend a little bit and to essentially offer him a more expansive view of his powers.
1: Things that we take for granted today of how the government works and sort of standard protocols, the founders were having to figure it out as as things came up, but setting precedent for future generations.
0: For the next two years, the U.S. Navy blockaded Tripoli's harbor but lacked both sufficient ships and the effective leadership needed to conclude the conflict. In the summer of 1803, Jefferson named Captain Edward Preble as Commodore of an enlarged Mediterranean squadron. Preble's record at sea was matched by his talents as a diplomat, and the young captains under his command became known as Preble's Boys. They established reputations for boldness and for courage. Preble was immediately faced with what appeared to be a disaster for America. The 36-gun frigate USS Philadelphia had run aground on an uncharted reef in Tripoli Harbor, and the Tripolitans captured the ship, imprisoned its captain and his crew, and then trained the Philadelphia's guns seaward, threatening Preble's blockade. Preble conceived a daring plan. He selected Lieutenant Stephen Decatur to lead what today we call a special operations mission, to either recapture or destroy USS Philadelphia. And on February 16, 1804, Decatur and 75 volunteers sailed into Tripoli Harbor aboard USS Intrepid, Decatur had disguised Intrepid as a British merchant ship in distress, and he received permission to tie up alongside USS Philadelphia to repair his damaged vessel. Isn't that a great name, Intrepid? Yeah, several U.S. Navy ships, including an aircraft carrier, have borne that name. But this Intrepid was just a 60-foot-long, four-gun catch that Decatur himself had captured from the Tripolitans the previous December. As Intrepid came alongside Philadelphia. Decatur himself led the boarding party that quickly overpowered the Tripolitan crew. Decatur quickly discovered Philadelphia was too damaged to get underway and he ordered the ship set ablaze. As Philadelphia burned and sank, Decatur escaped without the loss of a single member of his crew. The news of this daring raid spread quickly, and the British naval hero Horatio Nelson is said to have called the burning of USS Philadelphia the most bold and daring act of the age.
1: Steve, hearing this story of attacking this vessel in disguise, this seems very different to the regular conventions of war for
2: the time period. For sure, and in some ways seems slightly underhanded. But Beth, I'm struck by the kind of undertones of the ways in which Jefferson and others view this conflict and view the Barbary states. It seems like they are treated as different than the European powers of the time. And, and one can't help but wonder if the ways in which Jefferson's views on race and, and certainly many in the United States and in Europe's views on race color the way they view these states on the coast of North Africa and their tactics in war.
0: Preble's squadron expanded their operations and began shelling the city of Tripoli to force Caramelli to come to terms with the U.S. Unbeknownst to Preble, the loss of Philadelphia so alarmed Jefferson that he dispatched Commodore Samuel Barron, commanding a flotilla of frigates to take command in the Mediterranean. Preble returned to the United States in February of 1805, thinking he'd failed but on arriving in New York City, he found that he and Decatur were being hailed as national heroes, and the newly reelected Jefferson was at the height of his popularity. Preble was not only an honored guest in the White House, but he was awarded a Congressional Gold Medal in recognition of his exploits. Preble sent Jefferson a hogshead of fine Marsala wine, and Jefferson sent Preble a polygraph machine in return.
1: So Steve, I really feel for him at this point where he returns to America in low spirits, only to be surprised about his greeting. Could you tell us a little more?
2: Talk about a kind of reversal of fortune. What happened here has everything to do with the amount of time it took for news to travel, as well as complications in the the Navy and the Army with the idea of seniority. Reinforcements are sent after the loss of the Philadelphia. They're sent before news of the attack on Tripoli had arrived in America. And uh, among the reinforcements are two officers who outrank Preble because of seniority. So when they arrive, they take over command and Preble ends up going home. And in his mind, apparently he thought he was being replaced, but that wasn't really what was intended. So Preble comes back to the United States thinking that he had let people down, and he arrives to find that he's a national hero.
1: sounds like Jefferson was sending the extra ships more as just support than what Preble took to be being supplanted.
0: That's right. America's conflict with the Barbary Powers ended in 1805 following a decisive victory at Durham a fortified town opposite the city of Tripoli. In battle at Derna, the undisputed hero was Jefferson's fellow Virginian, a young Marine Corps officer, Lieutenant Presley O'Bannon. On April 27, 1805, following fierce fighting, O'Bannon planted the U.S. flag to commemorate the defeat of the Tripolitan army Legend has it that O'Bannon was presented a Mameluke sword in recognition of his gallantry. Following the American victory at Derna, Caramelli admitted defeat. A peace treaty was signed aboard USS Constitution June 3, 1805. It ended the payment of tribute. After two decades, Jefferson's commitment to effect a peace through the medium of war had lasting consequences Jefferson's overseas deployment of the Navy and Marine Corps demonstrated the U.S. was willing to defend its interests on the global stage. His unilateral use of power without the prior approval of Congress set a precedent followed by his successors in the White House right down to the present day. And for the American people, the victory over the Tripolitan Corsairs generated a sense of self-confidence that they could unite, they could fight, and they could win to preserve their independence. For Jefferson, defeating the Barbary pirates silenced those who predicted he would be a weak and a timid president. For Edward Preble, the war took a physical toll. He never went to sea again. And Preble's boys, including Stephen Decatur, they'd go on to become heroes in the War of 1812. Presley O'Bannon left the Marine Corps in 1807, settled in Kentucky, served in the state legislature, and the Marine Corps Mameluke sword and the Marine hymns lyric to the shores of Tripoli, memorialize O'Bannon's heroism. The U.S. Navy has recognized the participants in the Barbary War, naming ships, including USS Thomas Jefferson, Bainbridge, Decatur, O'Bannon, and Preble in their honor. There's a story connected to every object on display at Monticello, and the story of Jefferson's Mameluke sword is one of my favorites.
1: So Steve, looking back at this whole series of events, this whole First Barbary War, what does it tell us about Jefferson as a wartime president? And what does that mean for us today?
2: Well, I I think it's a super fascinating story that David told. This is so early in the history of the United States that he's really setting a precedent for the use of executive power. And we can see today how our presidents use military force through executive power all the time. So I think it's an important story and one that adds another layer of, of nuance to how we understand Jefferson's political legacy.
1: I, I think that is a good point that it sets a precedent, sets a tone right up through the modern day.
2: Beth, thank you so much for joining me today to talk about this interesting topic and to listen to David's story with me.
1: It was my pleasure, Steve. And I'd also like to thank David. He himself is a retired U.S. Navy captain.
2: That's right. He has expert knowledge of the U.S. Navy from his own experience. And and finally, we'd like to thank the listeners for joining us today on In the Course of Human Events. We hope you'll join us for our next story.